This episode is brought to you by Tropeka. Our culture hasn't really designed us to look after ourselves. We're taught to achieve more, do more, accumulate more, be more productive. I had money. Um, I had friendship. I had an identity that I had built. But the, the real cost of that was my mental health. You know, we can't actually meditate COVID away. You know, we can't meditate, <laughs> you know, civil unrest away. We can't meditate our pain away. But we can learn to respond to it and we can learn to transform that in that way. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. So we are back this week with another guest whose episode couldn't be more perfectly timed. You may have heard my chat with him on the Tom Organic podcast earlier this year, and if you did, you'll know I refer to this guest as my spiritual guru, but if you didn't, you'll very soon understand why. Manaj Diaz has taught me so much of what I know about the transformative nature of sitting with discomfort, understanding the role of suffering, and the deeply life-changing impact of meditation and connection. We explored some of this in our episode on the Taboo podcast, but go a whole lot deeper here and explore his incredible story, which I found enormously helpful, particularly during this shitstorm of a year, and I hope you do too. While I wouldn't blame you for not being able to imagine it of either of us how we are now, it was not wellness that brought us together, but our nightclub glory days before our ways to yay really began. That alone is a reminder of my all-time favorite theme, the non-linear nature of life, and the way it unravels in many chapters, not just the one you know someone from. Born into the Theravada Buddhist tradition, you might think Minaj skipped logically and seamlessly straight to his position now as a globally recognized meditation teacher, author, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Open Meditation. But squeeze a successful corporate career first, teenage fatherhood, a mental health breakdown, an eating disorder, and an ensuing transformative healing journey in between, and you're getting closer to the real picture. Minaj shares all of the facets of himself so generously, as well as busting some meditation myths and some tips on how to do it properly, and I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Naji, thank you so, so much for joining Seize the A. I'm so happy to be here. I always so look forward to our chats and get something new out of them every time, and it's funny how many episodes have been in the works for a little while, but when they come around, it's always at the perfect time for us to hear that particular guest's message. And I think, you know, I've called you my spiritual guru on more than one occasion before. (laughs) (laughs) 
and you have so much to teach us all about sitting with discomfort and dealing with uncertainty. So I really, really appreciate you making the time for us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat to you, Sarah. <laughs> so I always start with a little icebreaker, but I've added a new one, which is really just to ask how you are, because I think mm. one of the things that you've taught me is that we need to be very gentle with the human experience. And this year is, of all things, a human experience. So how are you coping? You're living apart from your partner. You've just moved suburbs. <laughs> how are you feeling in this isolated space? Mm. You know, I never get tired of being asked that question because it's almost like this immediate reminder for me to go into my body. Usually there's a sense of I feel calm or I feel anxious, or I feel sad, or I feel angry. Today, like the, there's a feeling of just feeling tender, like, and, and it just feels like I've been really overwhelmed the last few months. And there's a, a tenderness to, to my experience at the moment. So, mm, Well, it has been an incredibly overwhelming time, but there's a taste right there of one of the things I love most about you in your ability to welcome the softer side of yourself and touch base with those kinds of emotions in a way that really should be the norm, but many of us don't as it gets a bit obscured by the busy. And I think this year has really forced us to strip that back and sit with our feelings. So I think you're one of the best possible people we could be talking to right now. <laughs> but before we do kick off, the actual icebreaker, which you may know already, is what the most down-to-earth thing is about you. And if it's not your unique ability to refer to yourself as soft and tender, but maintain your masculinity all at the same time, what is it? I mean, with multiple businesses, global ambassadorships and a book coming out, it can seem quite glossy on the surface. So what's something really relatable about you? Oh, I'm so human. I think the, um, the assumption is as a meditation teacher that, you know, I'm calm 24-7, I have everything together. And that's not the case at all. Like I had been a mess, you know, periods of over the last six, seven months, I, I've been definitely all over the place. So um, I think just my humanity. Mm, absolutely. That is something I always assume about you. I'm like, here's it together. <laughs> you know the answers to everything. I'm like, oh, you can't break down because then what will I do? <laughs> But I think that's another thing in, in the caring professions or, or the meditation and spiritual well-being professions, your own emotional state can sometimes fall to the mm. very bottom of the list. So which is why I introduced that question of just asking how you are, because I feel mm. like you're helping everyone else with how they are and not, not making that space for yourself. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. And that's true. Like, you know, we sometimes forget the people that are the most important. And I think if you, I'm learning more and more, if you take care of yourself, I used to think of that as a really selfish act, but actually you serve everyone else better around you. So it's kind of a community service, really. Yeah. And, and I mean, we forget <laughs> that. But also I think, you know, that our culture hasn't really designed us to look after ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are existing in a culture that is predicated on, you know, capitalism. Like that's the, the system that we all exist in. And inside of that, we're taught to achieve more, do more, accumulate more, be more productive. And so when you think about all the things that we have to do in the course of that day, like genuine wellness falls you know, right at the bottom of that. Even sometimes our workouts can feel like we just have to power through it in order for us to feel good. But I think, you know, it's something that I'm constantly having to remind myself of and, and relearn is that I can slow down and, uh, and it's been hard. Yeah, it's definitely been hard. 
I mean, even my sort of like A-type overachievy nature has even made me try and achieve and like win at resting. Like I'm like, have I rested to the mm. best of my ability today or not? Like am I <laughs> A-plus at resting or no? <laughs> like everything's a box right. tick. <laughs> Every, it is. It really is. And it's. I think it comes to light, right, like during times that we're all in quarantine that we realize like how much do we, first of all, how much do we need, really need to enjoy ourselves like, and what is really important? For me, if I get a good night's sleep, and I had this conversation this week with a friend in New York who's been sheltering in place for five months, and she just says to me, look, some days if I make it up and if I have a shower, that's like a really good day. And I'm like- If I shower, that's a good day for me. (laughs) Right? And it sometimes is. like It's sometimes just a good day just to to take things really slow. And I think we kind of forget that in our hyper-productive, hyper-connected world. Yeah. And that is such a big part of this podcast is stripping back the hyper productivity and all those layers and just going back to basics. And I think people also forget, particularly in the case of people like yourself who are leaders and for you, you know, leading the way for comprehensive well-being, everyone who meets you now at this chapter forgets that when you and I met, we were not this enlightened. <laughs> you know? We met in our nightclub heyday yeah. before we had even started thinking about purpose or pathway let alone actually taking actions towards it Mm. and that's what the first section way ta is about reminding everyone of who we were first stripping back all the stuff we know now and Mm. tracing each step of the tangents and the roller coasters that it it takes to get you to this enlightened state now so Mm. let's go back to young menage like right from the very beginning (laughs) and go through all those steps that have contributed to who you are, not all of which are directly relevant to what you're doing now, but just Mm. how you made your decisions, how you came to finding the joy that you have now and your corporate life, still can't believe that that ever existed. (laughs) What do you even mean? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, wow. You know, I've been reflecting a lot on my the lately. You know, I think um, reflecting on my birth has really taken me back to Sri Lanka where I was born and the time that I spent there, I grew up there until I was five or six and then migrated to Australia. When my parents migrated to Australia, we migrated to far north Queensland, which to this day, I still have no idea why. Like it's like <laughs> the most perplexing place to Sri Lankan, like a, a young Sri Lankan family would move their kids to. But um, growing up there was, was, very, was very abrupt and it kind of shook me to my core in terms of my identity. You know, I, I grew up as the only person of color in like my whole town. Mm. Uh, I experienced tremendous amounts of racism growing up, uh, bullying, like physical and verbal abuse. And from a very, very young age, I remember the idea of trying to fit in became very important to me. So as I was trying to fit in, I foregoed like the spirituality that I was around in Sri Lanka because, you know, I lived next to a, a monastery. Buddhism was in my house. And so I was very connected to that as a child because I remember my dad even saying to me one day that when I was a child, like he was scared that I wanted to grow up and be a monk because every time we would drive on the road, we'd see monks walking and I'd get up and I'd, you know, bring my hands to my heart and I would bow. And usually like in, in Buddhist in Buddhist schools, like when a child has a, an inclination towards you know, following the Dharma, the Buddhist path, they start it very young. So there's a, a deep connection to it very young. So my dad used to hide me. Like when we used to go driving and he'd see <laughs> monks, he'd put like, you know, he'd hide my head so I wouldn't see that. He didn't want you and, to be um, a monk. No, he was like, I don't I don't want to lose my son. He just he just came into the world. I remember that and then going to Australia. It was a very it was a very different experience. So Fitting in was all I was really concerned about growing up because I was so different, you know, and 
and society was telling me I was very different. Mm. And so that experience really shaped, you know, my my formative years. And then moving to Melbourne, I, I was in a, a much more multicultural part of Victoria. And then again, my my heritage was was brought to the fore because you know we had these divisions. We had like the Turks and the Serbs and then the Chinese and then the Maoris and then everyone else, which was me <laughs> and the Africans, you know, like we were all just kind of in these like weird factions. And again, it was, it was around identity. It was like, who am I? Like, who, who am I in order to, to fit in? But, you know, somehow I made it through you know, high school and, you know, then my, my daughter came into this world. And, and again, my identity changed as well. And I became a father, you know, at the age of 18. Um, you know, obviously I'm planned, but, you know, I was very much in love with my, my girlfriend at the time and we were together for a while and, and we welcomed this beautiful human into the world. And then my identity was based on how I could provide you know, for my child. So I worked my way up, you know, through through the finance industry and was very successful in, in marketing and, and advertising. And I'm sure I saw you at multiple Victoria race days, you know, in our, in our, in our suits. And <laughs> I lived, a, I lived a life that was very excessive because I was really fueled by this feeling of having things I, I'd never had, which was I had money, um, I had friendship, I had an identity that I had built. But the, the real cost of that was my mental health. Mm. You know, I, I, I was stressed you know, beyond uh, measure. I was, I was suffering from uh, chronic insomnia and, and that kind of culminated one day in, in having a, a pretty serious panic attack at work and that panic attack was you know looking back it is always like such a blessing because at the moment it was like death because I, I went to psychologists and doctors and shamanic healers and reiki healers to try and get well they all well, the majority of them all suggested medication um, especially you know the ones that worked in the medical profession and, and I was on medication for a while but then developed uh, an addiction to that medication that you know plunged me deeper into you know this space of suffering and mm -hmm. um that was i look back the most spiritual time of my life because i was really confronting my own mortality in a very real way i i didn't know what was happening because we don't you know we don't talk about we didn't talk about it then like we do now like now everyone is very open with their mental health issues but back then the word anxiety was like you were a freak that was something wrong with you um, addiction was such a dirty word. Like, I, there's no way I could have even spoken to anyone about that. Mm. Um, but it was it was a, it was a wild time. You know, it was a really really wild time. So I'm very thankful that you know by chance I found my way into back into the Buddhist path. It is so interesting to me that looking back, we have such strong synergies in our stories of really successful corporate careers where we did kind of think we were the shit for a little while. Like it's not that we hated where we were. It's just that slowly that dissonance between what we have found out that we care about and what we were doing was slowly getting larger and larger. Mm. I think we probably both had those big panic attacks that led to a huge pivot in our lives around the same time. But it's so symptomatic of the fact that it wasn't really able to be talked about that we haven't bonded over that until you you know how many years later now mm -hmm. like seven eight years later yeah yeah well more actually for me probably about nine yeah and it would have been around the same time and none of us knew who to reach out to at that time to talk about it like I knew you then and we would never have talked about that until now it's mm. another thing I think is so interesting is that you know looking at the surface of the story you see you know you were born and raised in the Theravada 
Buddhist tradition and now you're really a leader in meditation and people think, oh, that makes sense. Like they don't know that there was this enormous chapter and these diversions and loss and, and formation of identity in between. So this is why I love going back through all that that part of things and trying to think of you, you know, at NAB and energy companies just <laughs> still blows my mind. But I mean, I think it it is still a really big part of forming that you knew what was the right path for you when you did eventually find it. Well, see, this is the thing. I didn't uh, I didn't think it was the right path for me because, and I think I've shared this story with you before, like mm. a friend of mine said, come and, come and try yoga. That was how he got me to, to come from his first class. Say, come and try yoga. And I said very clearly to him, I don't own any Lululemon. I can't go. Like that was really <laughs> actually what I said to him. And, uh, Says the and now global like, ambassador for Lululemon. But whatever. <laughs> the, irony, <right? laughs> the irony. But then he was, he convinced me. He was like, no, there's lots of hot girls there at yoga. Come, like, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll like it. And I'm like, ah, oh, oh, okay, cool. So, I mean, this was me in the middle of, you know, being um, just coming off my addiction. I had an eating disorder at this stage. I was severely anxious. My mother had moved back from Hong Kong to look after me because I couldn't look after myself. And um, she, this guy dragged me to this class and it was a Buddhist meditation class. And um, the first thing that I, I recognized in this class was he was a teacher that was actively talking about suffering. And he was speaking about it in a way where it wasn't something that that made me feel like a freak. It wasn't something that I thought only I was experiencing. He was saying like the human condition is to suffer. Merely by the fact that you are born, you will suffer. And that was just like so comforting to, to know that, you know, we all go through this and it wasn't just me. And up until that point, you know, my narrative was I'm defective, like it's something broken within me. You know, apart from talking about suffering in this very normalized way, he talked about this ability to understand our mind and, and observe our thoughts. And, and again, it was just very foreign to, to even conceptualize that I didn't have to believe every thought that popped into my mind. I could create this sense of awareness between you know, the stimulus and the response. And I remember leaving that class feeling in my body, perhaps for the first time in my life, you know, feeling like I was connected to the body and not connected from the neck up to the head. And it was, um, yeah, very, it was life-changing. Well, yeah, I mean, actually it has <laughs> been quite life-changing for you. <laughs> Were you, I think one of the big things that held me back a little bit in the beginning when I was going through a similar thing, like just physically ticking all the boxes of wellness, still mentally not okay and wondering why wasn't it all just sort of working out because I was eating broccoli and going to the gym. <laughs> and in, you know, the depths of pain of trying to figure out what, was missing in my approach to my mind and, and looking after myself, I was quite skeptical. Like I have a bit of a science brain. I do like answers. I did come at things with a very like, how can I achieve and fix this? And I think a lot of people are quite skeptical of meditation and more spiritual practices. But there's, I think the science in the West and the practices in the East are coming closer and closer together. How did you bridge that gap for yourself? And then now talking to people who are very new, even though it's not as new anymore, talking to people who are new to meditation, mindfulness. I mean, you've even done Vipassanas, so silent mm -hmm. retreats that are a huge thing. I mean, that's on my bucket list. And I think for the a lot of us, this is the very first time we've ever stopped and sat with our thoughts and really reflected on them. And that causes an enormous amount of discomfort. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that is why dealing with the discomfort and learning how to process suffering or adversity is what then makes the conscious life so much better. So 
coming from a place of complete newbie to I'm going to change my life and follow this path, what was that? How did you do that? Yeah, I mean, I love this question. The the first thing is I was very much like that. Like I, if I didn't, if I couldn't, if it couldn't resonate with me on a cognitive level, then I wasn't going to do it. You know, I thought yoga was for girls. Like that was what I genuinely thought. So there's two ways I, I usually answer this. First way is that our brains love science to the point that, you know, if it doesn't make sense, then then we won't do it. So we need proof. We need evidence. But I think about, I, I reconcile that with, you know, when we wake up in the morning and or we go for a walk and we see a beautiful sunset, like there's nothing scientific about how that affects us. That's a direct experience of beauty that just regulates our nervous system, um, reduces the cortisol in, in, in our body, reduces the adrenaline and fills it up with oxytocin. And there's nothing scientific about that experience, even though it gave you a scientific response to it, right? It's just this direct experience of something very beautiful, something magical that alters our internal chemistry. So meditation and mindfulness has, has been around for, for centuries. And now maybe the confusion is that the new age stuff is is kind of very prevalent, like, you know, meditations that people just make up and then they share and people get weirded out by that because <laughs> it might involve, well, you know, it might involve like, you know, cacao ceremonies and crystals and, and all of that might seem for some people, you know, a bit out there. But, you know, for me, I, I like what I study and what I practice is a tradition that has you know, spanned 2,500 years and the Buddha was known as the first psychologist. Mm. And I think for, for someone that wanted to learn uh, the scientific underpinnings of anything that was good for me, here I was presented by the fact that this guy was actually a psychologist and he was telling me how to understand my mind. And so that was really appealing to me. But it wasn't until I had that direct experience that I actually really dropped into it you know like my my life started to change in ways i couldn't see like i remember my relationships started to improve the way that i was communicating started to to soften what i valued started to transform and that i couldn't argue with Mm. and there are two ways that we can always look at this like one way is through what am i getting what am i getting what am i getting and the other way is through how am i kind of how am i presenting to the world like what what is the what is the output of that and sometimes the only person that can see it are the people that are closest to you and you might not even be able to see it sometimes but maybe nick sees it you know and i know with with me like my my meditation practice it was my daughter that first started to to recognize that i was you know a lot calmer and a lot more present a lot more engaged but in my mind i was like no i'm still stressed (laughs) what's going on like i'm not performing better like what's what's happening but it, there's there's different ways to present this to people. And I think um, over the years, what I've learned is to, obviously I teach to very much secular audiences, but I also tend to tell people that this is beyond something that the mind can always understand. Totally. And I mean, if you do need a little bit of a push in the right direction, there are amazing studies out like by, you know, Harvard Medical School, there's actual scientific evidence of the way that your gray matter in your brain actually changes for anyone who's super, super skeptical at that end of things. But also it's true, like Nick can tell when I haven't been meditating. And it's not the biggest thing that helped me as well is when someone, I think it might have even been you to be honest, and this is why I've asked I asked you this question on the Tom Organic podcast, was someone explained to me two things. One is that you can't do it wrong. I think a lot of people think you're meant to have no thoughts and that just doesn't actually ever happen. Like your brain very, very rarely, unless you're very well trained, it's very rarely empty. So if you're Mm. thinking thoughts, it doesn't mean you're not meditating. 
And the other thing is that the improvement it makes to your life is not necessarily that you're never stressed again. You're not going to not have any bad feelings. It's not a cure for adversity Mm. or challenge or fatigue or stress or any of those kinds of emotions. It's more that you're more able to deal with them when they come. So it's interesting that you said after that you're like, I'm still stressed. Well, your stress didn't go away. It was more probably your ability to process it, to not take it on, to observe it objectively and see it, you know, separate your thoughts from your thoughts about your thoughts in that kind of metacognition way. Absolutely. And, and I think it's for me that the practice is not about transcending the suffering. It's about embodying it. Mm-hmm. So what that really means is that we can, we can learn how to respond to the challenges that life throws at us. You know, we can't actually meditate COVID away. You know, we can't meditate, <laughs> you know, civil unrest away. We can't meditate our pain away, but we can learn to respond to it and we can learn to transform that in that way when we don't have this expectation that we need to be fixed or that there's mm-hmm. something wrong with us. So the, as you said, there are so many, there's actually last I heard 10,000, over 10,000 research papers on the benefits of meditation. And you know, if you Google it, it's proclaiming to cure everything from baldness to weight loss <laughs> to um, you know, insomnia to depression to anxiety. And you know, some of it I think is absolutely, it is helpful, but I always tell people like meditation isn't a panacea. It's not, it's not going to fix all of your problems, but you you combine meditation with therapy, with good friends, with a good diet, with a little bit of exercise. And that's like a, a recipe for a wonderful life. Totally. In terms of actually doing it properly as well, which I, I think that's something that especially perfectionists, like I tend to be get a bit stressed about. How do isn't you the, actually Isn't that ironic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you teach, you know, the difference? I think people get a bit confused about the term meditation and, and the term mindfulness and then yeah. guided meditations versus silent meditations and then even further into like transcendental versus Vedic versus, you know, I think it encompasses all of those things. But how do you teach it, particularly to newcomers? What would you say to them about whether they're doing it properly? Yeah, I mean, so there's, I think, let, let's talk about probably the most well-known, which is mindfulness. And I think people assume mindfulness is just meditation. It can be for sure. So mindfulness came from the Buddhist lineage and it was taught as part of a, a discourse that the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, which is called the Satipatthana Sutta, which roughly translates to the four foundations of, of mindfulness. And the first foundation is the body. And you know what the Buddha what the Buddha taught like is in the body. If we pay attention to the body in a certain way, we can begin to really train our minds, train our hearts to suffer less, or in his words, to eradicate greed, hatred, and, and delusion. You know, which are the, the course um, sources of suffering. So when I teach meditation, or when I go in and give a talk, like I, I tell people, there's already ways in your life that you are mindful, and you've never had to have meditated ever before. You know, whether you're going for a run and you're feeling that connection to the movement and that sense of flow when you're in the run, or whether you're having a deep and meaningful conversation with your partner, uh, or whether you're cooking and you're feeling the ingredients with your hands, you're smelling the aromas, like they're very mindful activities because your senses, like the body, is deeply engaged with the present moment. Now, meditation is, is in one way, a more concentrated version of that. We're actively training our minds, mindfulness meditation, to be present in that moment. We try to be as compassionate as we can whilst we're doing it. So what that really means is that 
you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who has been credited as being um, one of the founders of modern mindfulness, talks about mindfulness as being a present moment awareness with a non-judgmental attitude. Um, I like to add the word compassion because it just makes it a lot more gentle for A-type personalities like you, know, you and me. Where, <laughs> what? What do you mean? <laughs> what am I talking about? Um, so, you know, we talked about it before this call. Like we we live in a culture that is hyperproductive, right? And, and we live in this framework where we're always trying to achieve. So meditation can feel exactly like that as well. We get in there, we're like, am I doing it right? That's the number one question people ask. And am I getting the return on investment that I'm putting into it? So <laughs> ROI, ROI. <laughs> it's, it's true. So the, the answer is when we're practicing mindfulness meditation, all we're doing is we're bringing our awareness to an anchor. And that anchor can be the breath. It can be sounds around us. It can be our body and the sensations we experience. As we bring, as we bring awareness to those things, we'll notice very naturally our mind will wander away. It's what we do as humans. Like we are preconditioned to do that. It wanders away to multiple things. But the moment that we recognize the mind has wandered away, that moment is mindfulness, right? So the moment we recognize we are no longer mindful is the moment we become mindful. And when we recognize our attention or our mindfulness has wandered away, we simply bring it back to the anchor. And when we do that, we're creating these repetitive patterns in our brain. And the more often we create these repetitive patterns of the brain where attention wanders, we come back, attention wanders, we come back. We're training the, the frontal, uh, frontal cortex of our brain and the hippocampus, largely uh, responsible for memory, uh, attention, and emotions. We're creating more gray matter, as you said before, in those regions of the brain. So the more often that we do it, the more we're populating in those areas. And it's almost like information highways if you want to think about the brain and neuroplasticity. And it's the same as yoga, right? Like the first time you and I probably tried yoga, I felt like a giraffe in there, like big arms, big legs, falling over everywhere. And then <laughs> the teacher would say, down dog, I'll be like, oh, and we're kind of looking at looking around, like, looking around at all the girls wearing Lululemon going, oh, that's that weird pose. I'm so distracted by all the girls in Lycra. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then you come back the next day and then, just like downward dog and your brain already computes what that means because it's experienced it before and then by the fourth or fifth class you know what a down dog is you might still look like a giraffe but your brain already computes how to get into it and mindfulness is the same if we can create these repetitive patterns in our brain through meditation or even outside of meditation then we simply experience more moments of mindfulness we're more present we're more engaged we're usually more compassionate because we've been practicing that the whole time and, um, and this, mind, this quality of mindfulness then becomes a quality of life. It doesn't become an activity that we do. Yeah. It becomes just a way of being. A quick word, lovely people, before we continue with today's episode about our partner in Yay, Tropica, and their amazing range of powders. You all know I'm a bit obsessed with wellness and finding ways to best help support the crazy demands I make of my mind and my body, and this Aussie business has really helped me conquer the day the healthy way. They're loved around the world for their naturally gluten-free and dairy-free proteins, BCAAs, superfoods, and teas, but my favorite is their lean 
lean protein range, which I've been adding to my smoothies after workouts to help with toning and muscle recovery, as well as for energy boosting snacks between podcast recordings and long days of editing. They taste so smooth and delicious without that chalkiness of some protein powders. Plus, they're easily digestible and non-bloating, which is a dream. Head to tropeka.com.au or tropeka.com and use the code YAY15 for 15% off your first order. Now, back to the episode. Oh my gosh, so profound. I learn something new every single time I speak to you and I have so many different questions in all different directions. (laughs) But (laughs) before we move on to how, I mean, I love how you describe your big pivot into, you know, back towards the Buddhist meditation practices as going from being once tethered to a life of self-management, which I completely identify with, to moving towards a life of self-awareness. And you've done incredible, incredible things as a career and providing platforms for other people to access the benefits of meditation. But before we move to that, I'd love to ask just out of curiosity, what a Vipassana actually brings up for you? Because I think Mm. not many people know someone who's actually done one. And a lot of us are learning to sit a bit more in silence and a bit more still in COVID, but not to the extent of a 10-day full non-communicative. You know, a lot of us can't communicate our love languages or the way that we normally would. So Mm. I'm sure you've got some lessons from the extreme version of that. And then secondly, you mentioned that you experienced among all the things that went on just before your big sort of change of direction that you experienced an eating disorder, which I also think is quite rare for men in particular, or rare that it's acknowledged, not necessarily rare that it's suffered. And I think orthorexia Mm. is right up there for a lot of people. Mm. Even if men had symptoms, they probably wouldn't necessarily investigate further or maybe seek the help that they might need. And I think it's probably with social media Mm. more common than we would, would think. So... I would love to just hear your thoughts on both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not something I speak about often, uh, mainly because I'm not asked about it. But Yeah, I actually thought that, which is why I was like, wait, before we do more meditation talking, <laughs> there are other parts of Najee, not, <laughs> not just the guru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it was a really interesting time in my life. Like it was, it was that period of about two years that I was going through so much mental mental trauma, really. I had just discovered yoga, I think it was, and I started to to feel a little bit better, but I was still very much in the grips of um, addiction, very much in the grips of anxiety. And I saw yoga and all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is going to fix me. Like that was my my thinking. So I became really obsessed with it. I would do it for four hours a day. I would go on vegetarian diets. I, you know, I'm a six foot three dude, like I've got wide shoulders. <laughs> so I'm, I became very skinny very, very quickly. And it got to the point where I was just not eating at all. And I would eat like one meal a day. Mm. And that was when I think my brother called my mom who was living in Hong Kong. And she's like, you better come and check up. You know, check up on Manu. She's not doing well. I just didn't want to eat because part, like I think part of me thought that this was my way to rebuild my life. And if I was to re- rebuilding my life, I just wanted to do everything in such an obsessive way that I would be really happy with the person I was. You know, So that included having a certain kind of body, almost like um, punishing myself as well, you know, for, for everything that I'd done before. Mm. But also there was this other really weird layer where I just didn't want to eat. Like I was so obsessed with other things, I didn't want to eat. And it was actually my meditation teacher that said, you have to come and live with me. So I, I came and I came and lived with him for about seven months. And um, turns out he's, before he became a monk, he was like an award-winning chef. 
Oh, amazing. He, yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, I call him my guru because he really saved my life in, in more ways than one. But he was the first person, he was the first man that really showed compassion, I think, in my life. Um, in a, in a way that really transformed me to my core. Like he, he held so much space for me mm. to, to break down, to, to fall apart, to cry, to get angry. And he just held that, this really maternal space for me. Um, and he also fed me. And, you know, through practice, I was with him for seven months. So in the morning, I would clean the, the meditation studio. Um, I would meditate and then I would have to go into the garden. I'd have to help him. And what he taught me in that process was being of service, you know, because I think I'd lived a very selfish life up until that point, um, a life where I was just accumulating wealth and accumulating experiences. Um, but I never actually considered anyone else in my life. And um, he was asking me to, to just give because I didn't have any money at this stage, right? I wasn't working. He was like, just give and give and give. And if you can't give, just give some more, like give whatever you have. And he really demonstrated that because he had a very small studio um, in Northcote. No one really knew about him, but he would have people that were there, you know, on the verge of suicide, uh, people that were there uh, coming back from addiction, people that were there on, on cancer treatment and cancer therapy. And he wouldn't make much money. He would, he would teach people for free. And, um, and, you know, through those experiences, I started to, to let go of thinking about myself as much and more so thinking about how I can help these people. And somewhere along the process, like I, my body just started to heal. My mind just started to heal. And, and yeah, like um, he was the person that I did my first Vipassana with, actually. So um, wow. we, went to, we went to Bali. I've done 10 uh, retreats all up. But um, he, was the, he was the person that I did the first one with. That's like 100 yeah. days, right, of full yeah. silence. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's not fun, put it that way. It's definitely not. I wouldn't recommend going on a date to Vipassana or anything like that. <laughs> It's definitely not a fun experience. But again, like this is where people these days can can enter into meditation in so many different ways. Uh, mindfulness was what I needed initially at the time. Um, but I learned very quickly that I could still be present, still be engaged with the with the moment. And I could still be chasing the wrong things. I could still have a view of the world that was causing suffering. Mm-hmm. I could still cause harm to others. Even though my mind was calm or I was more focused, so Vipassana really broke me again. It broke me and it healed me altogether because I had to literally sit with my pain and sit with my pain day after day after day. And I went to some dark, dark places because when you, I don't know if you've ever tried to just be alone with your thoughts, it's a scary fucking place, right? It's really, really scary. And what comes up is is everything and anything. And it's like every fear that you've ever had in, in your life, every pain that you've ever experienced in your life, all the hurts coming back to you. And that's just the mental stuff. And then there's the, the physical pain of actually having to sit and just notice the, the physical pain that's arising. And what you start to learn is, is anicca. And anicca is, is impermanence. You know, anicca is this quality of the state of flux that our world exists in and essentially boils down to everything that is here is ultimately not going to be here. So why do we cling to them? You know, it causes us more suffering. Um, why do we get so attached to things that are always moving because it causes us more suffering and we don't have to react to everything that happens in our life. And, you know, COVID has been like a really good reminder, you know, as soon as any sort of announcement happens from our premier, that I have a going to an instant reaction. And then I'm like, well, hang on. 
it's okay. Like this is going to end as well. Like, so it teaches us lots of valuable lessons, but it's, um, mm. it's definitely not a practice that I would suggest for people to just dive into. I think you should practice with a teacher first and have some understanding of what it contains before doing it. Yeah, I think it's definitely at the expert level end of the spectrum of <laughs> well, I would exercises like no, well, just, I would, not for I the newbie though, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not for someone that's like, hmm, maybe I'll try the partial this weekend. Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not that. You definitely want to have some idea of what you're getting into. But yeah, it's a profound experience for sure. Well, I kind of think, oh God, there's just so many things to take out of what you just said, and I was like nodding along furiously the whole way, just thinking that attachment is something that a lot of us start our earlier lives and careers and and journeys with and attachment does tend to be a bit more of the source of suffering than anything else and once you surrender to things and surrender to that flux that's when you do become a little bit more impervious and you you do become more balanced and you do become more resilient and i've found myself that i observing people's reactions to covid the thing that has been hard for us is what we were attached to that we've had to let go of. But if you didn't hold as many attachments, it's easier to adjust because you're ready for flux. You assume that life is going to be, everything changes, everything is impermanent. And um, Mm. that kind of balance of, it's interesting that I think an eating disorder in a lot of cases for people is a sense of them trying to get control. Mm. And you were in that place where you did have a lot of attachments, you're trying to let go of them, but then you are seeking control in other places because you're sort of just so unused to being completely mm. vulnerable to to what's happening around you. Mm. Um, so I think that uh, there's a lot to pull out for a, a lot of us at the moment on a probably more day-to-day scale than a Vipassana, but a lot a lot that's really useful in that. Yeah, and, and you know, what, what Vipassana essentially teaches us three main things and, and they're known as the three characteristics of existence. Um, so Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. And so Dukkha is suffering and then Anatta is it's defined as not self. And so I, I've reconciled this with what's happening in the world right now because Anicca is everything is impermanent. Dukkha is suffering exists in our life. And then Anatta is the main cause of our suffering is this identification to the self, right? And I think about me, I'm an artist, the meditation teacher, the entrepreneur. I'm This is who I am. And I hold on to this idea of who I am so tightly, you know, and and it's caused problems, you know, like when people always think oh, I'm super calm, I'm super chill, like mm. everything, I got everything together. And, and like, that's not the case. Like I'm, I'm, I rarely have my shit together, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's just part of it's just, and I'm okay with that because again, this, this is a state of flux and COVID is teaching us all of this, like who our identities are so wrapped up in the work that we do, mm. how the gyms that we go to, the cafes that we hang out at, like our identities are so wrapped up in all these different things. What happens when we take them away? They're suffering. And when they're suffering, how do we respond to that? And we can respond to that by recognizing that that too is impermanent or we can be caught up in that cycle of of suffering. Mm. I think really the fundamental basis of this podcast has been unraveling people's identities with their output. And I mean, obviously that's still a mm. big part of your personality and your purpose, but it's not all of it, which is why the, the whole last section, which we'll get to, is separating Menage meditation teacher, menage guru, mm. menage author, menage speaker, and just investigating who you are when you're just doing what makes you happy. Mm. But before we do get to that, just finishing off your way TA, and we've kind of mixed in your nay TA with it. I think another thing that's just so demonstrative of how 
the world is constantly in flux and chapters that you never could have ever imagined and maybe never even planned can arrive in your life and surprise you in the best kind of way that just since the last podcast episode I did with you, still in isolation, so not even that long ago, your first, Australia's first multidisciplinary drop-in meditation studio, A-Space, has been acquired. (laughs) So tell us about, and I mean, that's just one of the facets of your career. You've led mass meditations at MoMA in New York. You're a Lulu Global Ambassador. You were the first to get that role, Mm. an entrepreneurial fellow at Monash. You know, you're working with the AFL Players Association. There's so many different incredible things that you're doing. And I think that is changing all the time. I mean, now you've You've been acquired and have this new role and have your first class on the new platform coming out. So tell us about this this latest chapter. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd been building my my own app, my own A-Space app, and I had investors in, in New York City that I was very excited to, to partner with. And uh, I was meant to be in New York in April. And I just returned from seven months in New York, I think in February, maybe just after I, maybe just before we spoke. So I'd returned back and I was packing up all of my stuff, was about to make the move, applied for the visa, that was all coming. And then obviously the world changed, right? COVID kind of struck um, and it struck New York City the hardest, um, you know, initially. So my my investors kind of got really scared and, and then they pulled out. And that left me in, in limbo because I was already packing up my life here. I had reconciled that, you know, I was taking this business to the next level and something that I've put like my, my life into you know, for the last six years. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really scary time. And when they pulled out, I didn't know what I was going to do. There was probably a month there where I was like, who am I? Like my identity, like who am I if I don't have a space and I'm not this teacher and I don't you know, have this platform? And um, a friend reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, there's a new meditation studio slash app in California. They've been following you for a while. They'd, they'd love to speak to you about just some advisory stuff. And I was very happy to have that conversation and, you know, ride the, the CEO of the company. Um, me and him struck up a real quick friendship. And over the course of, I think, about six weeks, we just started to become closer and closer as friends. And we recognized that what I was trying to do with A-Space and what um, he was trying to do with Open were almost the identical thing. And I had developed a community of, you know, 17,000, 18,000 people and, you know, globally, New York and, and Australia, and they were relatively new to the market, but had amazing technology platforms and an amazing team. So, um, yeah, we just had a conversation. He's like, well, do you want to join us? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and, um, sure. <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was a really simple for me because I thought like nothing is certain now. Like, you know, in this, in this life, like, especially now, like in the middle of a pandemic, like nothing is certain. Mm. So um, it was a very easy decision and, and I'm very grateful for the team for, for accepting me. And I've joined as a co-founder of the new company and um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be launching a, a digital offering and in studios in LA, New York, Melbourne and San Francisco when we're all hopefully allowed to go and practice the studios. It's so funny that you said nothing is certain because one of the quotes I've been turning to a lot in this time is that when nothing is certain, anything is possible. So it's an incredibly mm. disorientating time, but it's also maybe perfect breeding ground for wonderful things that you never expected. I love that. And the other quote that always comes out is, um, beautiful beginnings are often disguised as painful endings. So even though in the time where the investors pulled out might have seemed like the worst moment of your life, actually just made space for something that you never knew was coming but is actually maybe one of the best things in your life. 
Yeah, and, and if I can offer one more. Um, oh, please which do. Like a, <laughs> which which has like a, a slight meditation element to it, but it has the same you know, same essence, which is Pema Chodron actually talks about, you know, um, meditation can sometimes feel like we're falling through the sky and the same way life can feel like we're falling through the sky. But then you realize that there is no ground. And <sighs> that for me is, it really encapsulates life, but also meditation is that we're constantly trying to, to hold on to something as we're just kind of spiraling through the sky. But when we kind of let go of this idea of control and we trust that whatever is going to take place, take place, you realize that there is no ground. So you're just falling. So true. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful quote. Oh my gosh. And it also really reminds me of something I meant to say before about the fact that we're often, and this comes back to that attachment thing, we're often aiming for a destination mm. and all of our hopes and dreams of happiness are at that destination. And so if anything happens and you can't get there, then it's like, what's my happiness? Who am I? But if you just embrace the journey as the the goal, not the end game. It liberates you from that expectation. It liberates you from that attachment and you stop thinking, I will be happy when, mm. and you're just like, I might as well be happy now because it doesn't matter where I get to. Yeah, and and also like for me, it's letting go of the attachment to happiness as, as yes. well, right? Because we, we live in a culture that's really obsessed with happiness and it, it puts happiness as like the, the primary feeling on a pedestal and everything else that isn't happiness is then sold to us as things that we need to fix. Yeah. You know? So we do everything we can to try to be happy. And sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's about, for me li- for me anyway, living gently. It's about contentment. It's about knowing that I'll have amazing moments of happiness and I'll have moments where I'll be anxious and moments where I'll be sad. And that's okay. You know, that's, that's a very human experience. Is this some of the stuff that we can expect in your book <laughs> that you're also doing among the many other million things that you've been doing lately? Oh, my God. 2020 has been such a stupid year. <laughs> um, but, you know, somewhere somewhere in – I signed the book deal last year and I hadn't started the book for about three or four months because I was still living in New York and I was, you know, fundraising and doing all that. So the book is called Still Together. It was a book exploring connection mm. right? and through the lens of Buddhist meditation and mindfulness and, and meditation. And the irony of starting to write a book on connection whilst <laughs> the whole world was disconnected, like forcibly disconnected, wasn't lost on me you know, during COVID. But I really had to start to explore what I was writing in my own life. And that was such a surreal experience you know, because... Obviously, I had to research, I had to speak to my teachers, I was putting all these words down, and then all of a sudden, stage three lockdowns, and I'm like, wow, like, I'm <laughs> losing my shit, and all of a sudden, it's like, no, no, you've written about this, like, go back a few pages, and I'm like, oh, yeah. So, it's um, it was a tremendously spiritual experience um, in the sense that, you know, I was questioning myself the whole way, like, I'm not a writer, like, I can't be writing this, no one's going to want to listen to me. And then I'm writing about, you know, all these different things that are occurring in the world. And I had the answers because I'd learned them. I had studied them over the last you know, 15 years. And um, then I got to my final chapter, which was, you know, chapter five. And the whole idea was to actually integrate the teachings, you know, in a everyday life. But I was immobilized because then at that point was the Ahmad Arbery got killed yeah. and George Floyd happened. And it brought up all of the trauma of, my whole life and 
literally for about four months, I couldn't, I couldn't write anything. So um, my publishers were on my case, like the manuscript <laughs> was running late. Yeah, I just somehow got through it. And, and, I, and I spoke about it. I spoke about what was occurring and I spoke about the trauma and I spoke about how I navigated you know, the year that was. Oh my gosh, it's all done then. Yeah, it's all done. Oh, I cannot wait to read it. <laughs> when does it come out? When can we get a copy? Yeah, it'll be out uh, probably February, May uh, 2021. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'll have to make sure to get all the links off you then. <laughs> the middle section we've kind of blurred together, it's usually an ATA, which is acknowledging that part of joy is the opposite of joy and sitting with that and appreciating that that's often the best learning ground for your growth rather than in the comfort zone. I think we've kind of covered most of it, but is there anything else that you've faced as a big barrier to your joy that you want to mention in your journey? Mm, I think ironically as, a, as an entrepreneur, not so much as a meditation teacher. You probably know this, like your your passion can really overtake you at times. It can overwhelm you to the point where, especially if you're in wellness, it can feel like <laughs> it's such a service to people, you know, and, and I feel like that all the time. Like when I'm asked to do podcasts or I'm asked to do different interviews, it can feel like such a joy, but you oftentimes, and, and this your podcast is excluded in this. Oftentimes, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I love talking to you, but oftentimes like, I care about other people to the point that I don't care of myself, you know, mm. and um, it's a, I think my work has always been, how can I look after myself? And even though I'm a meditation teacher, I'm constantly having to relearn this lesson. It's that fixing other people isn't always going to fix myself. You know, I have to also work on that. And I, I also think what's hard when your skill and your passion is made your profession is that then you kind of, the business of meditation is not meditating. Mm. Like it's being a business person mm -hmm. that's in the business of meditation and they're two yeah. very different things. So you're not just meditating all day, you're actually running the business of meditating, which is mm. a totally different thing to your passion. So it mm -hmm. can be Absolutely. extraordinarily draining and I think most people in wellness face that irony that our wellness goes right to the very bottom of the list because the delivery of a wellness business becomes your passion rather than your own wellness, which gets very, very yeah. confusing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know all about that. I know. Oh, I'm the worst at it. <laughs> so I'm like nodding away. So the very last section just to wrap up is Play TA, where we look at how you play, how Minaj separates himself from Meditation Minaj and all the hats that you wear, Global Ambassador Minaj, even Minaj who's being a carer and someone who is of service and values being of service a lot. When you're just being totally, I was going to say self-indulgent, but I actually think I have to learn it's not self-indulgent. Mm. What do you do just for fun? Do you binge on Netflix? Do you watch <laughs> TV? Do you read? Are you a podcast guy? Like what do you do that's just purely for your joy? I eat. Yes! <laughs> uh, I think all of those things, you know, 100%. I'm obsessed with Insecure at the moment on, on Apple TV, so I'm, I'm watching that show. Obsessed with Netflix. I, I love to eat food. I love to, I, I take like that as part of my self-care, like a genuine, like I, I love to dance. Like I, <gasps> you might even remember yes. back in the day, Sarah, like we, we had many wonderful experiences on the dance floor. Yeah, it's something I take, I take very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I've been missing, I was doing hip hop classes at the space and right, like I right. can't do them at the moment. I'm like, no one does hip hop online. Well, they, they do. So my, my homegirl, Vanessa, teaches uh, groove therapy which is it's an on it's a beginner's adult uh, hip-hop class which has been epic and I've kind of been doing those classes and you know just having like virtual dance parties with my friends and when no one's around oh my god why have we not done that it. 
Or usually because I'm, or probably because I'm really embarrassed to have anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would be so much fun. I'm so glad that you do that. I love that. See, even people who are considered the most balanced and calm, you know, you have your outlets and they're not always just meditating. Uh, It's all joy. It's all joy for me. (laughs) And uh, to finish out, what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Oh, wow. Um, And I think that they should be not meditation related. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I was young, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Stop! I was... No, I was obsessed with fashion, you know. <laughs> and I remember actually one day it was careers day and I had to put on my form, like, you know, what are the professions you want to do? And I'm like, fashion designer. And I went and showed my mum and dad and they were like, no, you better go and scrub that out and put like lawyer or doctor or, you know, business. And they gave me this whole lecture on how, you know, uh, fashion designers don't make much money. Um, you're never going to have a career. <laughs> And so then I gave that up, you know, so I have, I have a soft spot for fashion. What I mean to say is I spent a lot of money on clothes. I did know <laughs> so that. that. That's one thing. I didn't know you designed them though. Maybe they're like, maybe the next iteration of A-Space is actually a fashion line. Well, there might be some cool collaborations coming out very soon. Oh. That I can't mention right now. Um, oh. Yeah, so I think, I think that's one. Um, I love Nutella. Like I'm obsessed That's a great one. I can eat Nutella. For breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and supper, um, it's yeah, it's like my kryptonite for sure. I love that we all have a crack, and I love that yours is it's Nutella. Nutella. Yeah, and I'm obsessed with football. I am. I'm a mad Brisbane Lions supporter. I grew up there, obviously, and um, I'm. Obs- I get filthy if I go to the football. Like people are like, is this dude a meditation teacher? Because I get filthy. I'm the same. So Nick won't go with me anymore because I'm like super refined, super anti-confrontation. Like I hate confrontations. Uh-huh. I'll walk away if like he's having a fight about the price of like anything that happens, even if it's justified, I just can't deal with it. And um, at the football, I'm like aggressively violent and just yeah. horrible, horrible. Like uh, yeah. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's all that pent up rage from childhood. <laughs> It um it definitely comes out and um and I love the footy so I wouldn't be able to I don't know how I'm going to go in San Francisco without it. Well, you can just watch it. You can stream it. You just wake <laughs> up at weird hours. It'll be fine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? Oh wow, um, that's a really you put me on the spot there. I know. Sorry, I should have. T- I was meant to send it to you yesterday, and I forgot. So, <laughs> um, I think. I mean, it's something that I've said to myself. So, can I quote myself? Is that really? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love you to quote yourself. Actually, a couple of people have done that. They're like, "Yeah, can I quote me?" <laughs> like, they're the best ones. Oh, we're so narcissistic, are we? I think slowing down as is an act of love. That has been something that um, has really stuck with me. This idea of what it means to slow down and and, it, and that is a real gift to myself. Absolutely. And all those around you. Like I said, it's a community service. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. <laughs> What's your altruistic act for the day? I looked after myself so no yeah. one had to deal with me. <laughs> <laughs> I slept. Yeah. <laughs> well, Naji, it has been a pleasure as always. I've taken so much away as I'm sure everyone else has. Oh, thank you thank so you. much for your time and hopefully catch up in person very soon. Thank you, Sarah. Lovely to see you. 
I really think Minaj is one of those people who you can't have a conversation with without it changing you in some way for the better. I really hope you found this as reassuring and interesting as I did. And if you did, please do show him some love, tagging at Minaj Diaz underscore and myself so others can hear his wisdom too. Next week is the big 100. I cannot believe it has come around this quickly. Don't forget I'm doing a little Q&A like I did for my 30th birthday last year. So if you have any questions, there's still time to submit them. You know I love a juicy overshare, so ask me absolutely anything before the weekend and I will try to answer as best as I can. Thank you so much for everything all of you have done to get us this far and I absolutely cannot wait for what the next 100 episodes episodes brings. Hope you're having an amazing week and are seizing your yay.